Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's the end of the week of Friday, the 18th of August. One of the nice things now about my Fridays is I usually get together with my guest and friend, Beth Ann Patrick, to talk about the best books of the week and of the month and of the summer. Last week, uh, she was telling me about her seven best novels of the summer, um, and they were dealing with the literature of love, nostalgia, young cool girls, and valiant women. And appropriately enough today, of course, Beth Ann is one of the best connected, most illustrious and trusted of all book critics. She's the book maven on Twitter. And she also writes for the Los Angeles Times, amongst other things. Um, and so this week, we're talking about her eight best nonfiction books of the summer. And it's appropriate, uh, given that last week, we talked about valiant fictional women. This week, we're talking about valiant non-fictional women. And one of her books is one that we've already covered by Lena Andrews, Valiant Women. Uh, it's a book about the valiant women, American women of the Second World War, Bethan uh welcome again thank you so much for appearing on keenon um of course it is always a pleasure and like you said it's a bright spot on a friday yeah it's a nice uh it's a nice end to the week uh bethan valiant women we talked about uh them last week in in fictional terms what is it about this book uh by uh lena andrews who i'm guessing is a neighbor of yours in washington dc i know she's a a CIA person in her day job. What is it about this book uh, that you liked? Well, you know, she must be a neighbor if she's, uh, since I live very close to CIA. Um, she's probably listening. She's week, probably observing us, right? Hello, That's Lena. right. She's, she's watching us right now. You know, last week I brought up Goodnight Irene by my friend Luis Urea. And that was about his mother's service. And it's a novel about his mother's real life service as a club mobile corps woman in world war ii but lena andrews book valiant women which is absolutely terrific it's a terrific read and it's also very very smart it's about the women who actually signed up for world war ii uh, with the military services now she doesn't forget about writing about women on the home front because we all know that women who stayed behind often were taking roles at factories munitions factories um you know making steel and iron etc um but Andrews, because she's an analyst at the CIA, has access to a great deal of research, many records. Of course, you know, we're just across the river here in Northern Virginia from D.C. So she also can go to the Library of Congress and the National Archives. And so she's talking about the wax and the waves and all of these women who chose to serve, who said, I may not be able to fight on the front lines like the men are right now, but I can do my part. And here's the thing about these value women. They often had to fight to do their part. They weren't simply given, you know, a uniform. Sometimes they 
they had to have a specific branch created for them. For instance, Andrews talks about Ovita Kulp Hobby, who was the head of the WACs, the Women's Army Corps. And she started the WAC division with the support of many people in the government, including First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. There uh, are a lot of profiles and anecdotes in there about the people who helped young women get enlisted, get into the Army and the Navy and the Coast Guard. Um, so one of the things I love in this book is that even something that doesn't seem particularly military can be really important to the military. For instance, mail, getting mail overseas and a woman and named Charity. M-A-I-L, right? Not yes, M-A-I-L. I'm sorry, M-A-I-L, yes, um, postal mail. And a woman named Charity Adams led the women of the 6888 Central Postal Battalion. They were black women. Yeah, it was an African. Up- I remember talking to uh, Lena about this one. Yeah, and I thought that is amazing. They got mail to soldiers during the Battle of the Bulge. And let me tell you, uh, especially because I am a military spouse and have waited for mail many times, it is an incredible thing to be overseas and get mail from home. It's very powerful. So I loved it. I love this book. I hope that Andrews just sells tons of them because we all we all need to know more about women in the military and other underrepresented groups. Does it also reflect the World War II as a, as a good war? We've done a number of shows on that. A lot of disagreement amongst nonfiction writers. Some see it as the, the, the great generation, the greatest generation, America at its best. Others remind us of second-class cit- citizenship at best, of African-Americans who fought in the war, their hysteria at home about Japanese Americans and so on. What was your conclusion after Valiant Women? Is it a a book that really reflects well on the United States, unambiguously well? I, I think it is. Am, it is ambiguously well, not unambiguously well, because Andrews does point out, as I said a couple of minutes ago, that these women had to fight to get the right to serve. Mm. So she's not ignoring the fact that the U.S. doesn't always do the perfect thing or the right thing. She is saying, look, these were people, individuals who really believed in their country and they wanted to be able to stand up for what they believed in. But unfortunately, the culture, the society, and the government was behind the times. So Lena Andrews doesn't ignore that at all. Uh, She is very, very good about showing us the process by which these different groups were formed and the women like Ovita Kulp Hobby, who actually made a difference and brought women in. And, you know, women are still, they're now in serving in combat positions. Things have changed so much since World War II. But what hasn't changed is that American women want to be able to serve their country just as American men do. And I think that is one of the reasons that Andrews wrote this book, to show this modern era influx of women into our armed forces. Yeah, and Andrews herself uh, takes great delight, she told me, in going into the archives, doing the research. In a sense, I guess, 
she's certainly not an academic. She's a her day job is as a CIA analyst. She's, I guess, in a sense, she's a a high end journalist, and and that is a segue to another book that you recommend, another book that we've covered uh, by Brooke Kroger, appropriately called uh, Undaunted, How Women Changed American Journalism. There's something rather undaunted, I think, about uh, Lena Andrews. Um, These books are connected in many ways, aren't they? They are connected in many ways. And I just like to go back to something you just said, Andrew, which is that uh, Lena Andrews as a CIA analyst is almost a combination of journalist and scholar. You know, mm. to be an analyst at the CIA, uh, I, you know, I don't know. Uh, I guess when you were an undergraduate, you would have been in England. But for us on the East Coast, um, being interviewed to be an analyst for the CIA was one of those rites of passage at colleges and universities. And, you know, they only took people who had incredible GPAs. Um, yeah, I think I, Lena went to MIT. I think she was yeah, and I will tell you, they told me I couldn't be an analyst, that I would have to be an operative. <laughs> so that gives yeah. you an idea of my GPA. But yeah, Lena I got, a, I got uh, interviewed for being an, uh, the equivalent in the British Secret Service. And of course, I failed, like I fail most things. <laughs> so this just... book by Brooke Kroger is, um, I really enjoyed actually, she's quite feisty. She's a yes quite a distinguished journalist in her own right. Yes. Um, is this, again, a, a mixed story, uh, uh, Bethan, of both success and failure on, on in, in terms of opening up a, um, a vocation, an important vocation to women? It, it really is. And here's something I find incredibly ironic. So this is how Brooke got the contract for this book. She got a call from a vice president at Alfred A. Knopf, the venerable publishing um, house, and uh, was told, we want to publish um, The Assignment of a Lifetime, a really good trade book that covers the history of American women who are journalists and reporters. And of course, that person was a man. And um, the irony is, I mean, Jonathan Siegel is a, a, a very, very great publishing figure. It's just that in our society, often men still hold the keys to things like contracts and book advances. But Brooke Kroger, who is so accomplished herself, took this and ran with it. And what she's produced, and this is extraordinary, it's a 600-page long history of women in journalism. And it's As you can see from the title, it's how women changed American journalism. So it's not just a dry history of, okay, she did this, she did that, she worked at the New York Times, she worked at this. It is a real examination of how women came into journalism in American times and how their interests changed the way newspapers were put together, Um, how their interests changed what was investigated, how important it is that we still have women reporters, journalists, editors, so that things like reproductive rights can be covered. And Kroger takes a real look at what it means. I'm going to borrow a phrase from Virginia Woolf and say, these are women who wanted a byline of their own. 
And some of them were young, some of them were older, some of them were black, some of them were white, but they have been incredibly brave and intrepid. And in some ways, you know, even for instance, Martha Gellhorn, who was an incredible. Yeah, war, yeah. She was sort of who connects, I guess, valiant women and undaunted. Exactly. She does. She does. And I I think that uh, Kroger shows that even though women at certain times were relegated, uh, Andrew, to, you know, the social pages that, just like the women in World War II, women journalists in the United States have wanted to get the big, incredibly meaty, important stories, and they've wanted to be allowed to report on them. And we know that they haven't always been allowed to do that. I remember um, I've interviewed Judith Martin, known as Miss Manners, several times. And one of the things that she'll talk about is being a young Washington Post reporter in the 1960s, when they first began the style section in the Washington Post, and how women were sort of stuck there. And it was really difficult to find a way into another part of the paper. It was really difficult to be in the news section or in the international section or, you know, anything from sports to health to, you know, computers. So this is real. And it's still, I mean, you know, Judith Martin is not particularly elderly. She's someone who experienced this. And so this is not old history. This is not past. This is the American present. And I think Kroger has given such a resource to anyone who wants to study this topic. It's just um, a tremendous, tremendous book. Yeah, I really enjoyed uh, interviewing her. She's, as I said, she rather feisty, corrected me on several occasions, deservedly <laughs> so. Um, both those books deal with very clear divisions between men and women. Another of your books, though, is on the increasingly blurred distinction between them. Um, uh, Elliot uh, Page has a new book out, uh, Page Boy, uh, a book about the increasing fluidity of, of, of gendered differences. Tell me about uh, Page Boy. I think that this is a memoir that is going to help a lot of people. And here's why. Um, one of the lines that moved me when I was deciding, you know, whether or not to take a look at this book was something in the copy, the jacket or the marketing copy that said, the author had already started acting professionally at the age of nine, but he had already learned to play a part. And I thought, that is that that's that's so difficult and heart wrenching to think of a nine year old going into the Hollywood machine and knowing that he was already hiding his true self. And so this story is one that everyone thinks they know. Everyone thinks, oh, we remember, you know, her. They'll say her instead of he, even though Elliot Page uses he, him pronouns and is a trans man. And we all remember Elliot Page in his role in the film Juno, which was a quirky, eccentric, and, you know, some somewhat bittersweet comedy. But in the book, in Page Boy, Elliot describes how awful it was 
to have to be seen as this new sort of ingenue like actor like oh she's so pretty she's so this while he was struggling mightily to accept himself and so um i think people often forget in this age of fluidity the word that you use which i think is a wonderful one that it's not just trans women who experience bullying and abuse. Trans men also experience a great deal of bullying and abuse. One of the things that's so beautiful in this book is that Elliot's mother, um, her love for him and his love for her comes through on every page. And I think this is a book, I mean, it's wonderful for another Elliot for a trans man, for someone who's gone through this, but it's even more important, Andrew, for parents who may have a child in transition to read this book and to see you don't have to go through a, let me reject my child. Oh, let me bring the child back. You can love them all the way through. And that is a very powerful thing. And to just, you know, say that, one of the things I loved uh, that you see is in the Umbrella Academy, where Elliot acts. It's a wonderful TV series based on a graphic novel. Uh, the character Elliot's been playing comes back from a vacation or what have you and is Victor, uh, a new male character and everyone just says hey way to go this is who you are you know and victor says yeah this is just me and i thought this is one of those books that has a lot of torment in it inner torment fortunately i believe elliot has had also the experience of real acceptance now and i just hope we can do that for more people yeah in a way it's a book about teaching parents to be, I guess, open-minded about their children's identity, not to tell them who they are. And in contrast, another of your top eight books of the summer yeah. nonfiction is a graphic novel about reminding children of who they are, The Talk. Uh, yeah. Another this is a powerful book, book to, uh, by Darren Bell, who's already won the Pulitzer Prize. Tell me about this book. So um, I really love graphic memoirs in particular. Uh, I think they can be an incredibly powerful way to get some of the more subtle things in memoir out through art. And so this is about Black men and Black boys, but very much more importantly, it's about Black fathers and their sons. And one of the things in the prologue that Darren Bell, uh, who's such an incredible political cartoonist, so, so good, um, he shows himself as a six-year-old and there's a group of dogs, a pack of dogs, and he's with some friends. And of course the friends are all like, hey, dogs, and holding out their hands and letting the dogs sniff their hands. But young Darren, is overwhelmed by fear and terror. What are these dogs going to do? You know, it is something that shows uh, the, dif the difference between growing up black and growing up white in this country in a very stark way. And so what in the things he says is when police see little white boys with toy guns, they see innocence, but they would look upon my son as a menace as a thing, as a threat to be dealt with. 
They might even shoot him. I know this makes no sense to him because it shouldn't. That's Darren Bell writing about his own son. And he is just, he's wondering when to have the talk, the talk that yeah. many black parents have. Of course, the with talk with most parents is about the facts of life. But <laughs> it's a Not in this fact, case. A much, a much uh, darker, much more troubling yes. fact of life. Exactly. Uh, those are four. We're going to take a, a short break. I want to uh, give a message to my um, new sponsor, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, a wonderful collection of, 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 of short pieces, um, sometimes a little bit longer, published quarterly. Uh, we're going to have a, a, a quick uh, video of quarterlies, and then Beth, uh, Bethann will be back with your, your other four best nonfiction books of the summer. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can find Liberties online at libertiesjournal.com. Um, Bethan, let's get on to the last four, the second uh, group of books. A couple of them are very weird. Uh, this one, The Sullivanians. Tell me about this. Um, uh, it's, it's really, uh, it's weird, but also not really particularly surprising. Sex, psychotherapy, and the wildlife of an American commune. It's Exactly, I guess what one would expect in American in an American commune. It, it is, uh, and this is so weird. It was on the Upper West Side of Manhattan uh, that people in, inhabited a brownstone together, and they were following the ideas. Uh, they were, weren't really called the Sullivanians. They were following the ideas of a man named Sullivan, but there were some other people who had really put them into practice. And so one of the things they really wanted to do was to break this apart. This is in the 50s, right? Yes, this is in the 50s, but it went until the 1980s. This, this went on for a long time. I mean, there was a guitarist from Steely Dan involved. Judy Collins was involved. There were um, Richard Price, um, the novelist was involved. There were a lot of people who got caught up. I, I don't want to quite say taken in because I don't know how long all of them were involved or you know how they felt about it. But let's put it this way. These um, psychotherapists who were in charge of this group wanted to break apart traditional family bonds. That really was something that was really important to them. They wanted to keep people from falling in love. So one of the things that they said, for example, is that um, they wanted to keep couples from forming traditional um you know, attachments. So everything was about having sex with everyone else. It was very um, seductive and free. And alcohol was important to them as a sort of, if you will, universal lubricant. And I, but I, what I mean by that is they were trying to keep people loose and ready for anything. But, um, you know, it was 
an egalitarian communist group in principle, but they were remarkably hierarchical. Everyone was always aware of where they stood. And I think that is probably what led to its ultimate investigation and downfall, because the people who were in power wanted to stay in power. And of course, not everyone was thrilled about that. So eventually, they had a few things happen. Uh, but it is a wild story. I highly recommend this. So you can see that there's always something behind you know the door of the next house. I mean, there's all kinds of things going on in life. Especially and, in New York. Right? Especially in New York. Yeah. Amongst the wealthy liberals. Um Yes. Not for the first, the last time, a, a, a narrative of, of a cult. And, and, and another fascinating and peculiar story, Anansi's Gold, the man who looted the West, outfoxed Washington, and swindled the world. We've all heard, of, of course, of those notorious online Nigerian scams. But here we have a man who successfully actually orchestrated... Um, swindling the world. Tell me about Amance's go uh, Anance's Gold. Well, I love this book. And I think I actually spoke about it a few weeks ago with you, Andrew. So I'll be very quick. But basically, this starts in 1966, Ghana. Kwame Nkrumah has, has just been deposed. And so a man who says his name is Dr. John Akable Mieza says he's got access to the millions of dollars that Nkrumah had put into something he called the Oman Ghana Trust Fund. And he said it was in a Swiss bank and he could get this money. So he just needed this from someone or he needed that from someone or he needed $10,000 here for a private jet. And he was incredibly, incredibly successful, okay? And there were people who tried to bring him to justice and failed. Um, he was sort of trying, he said, to sell liberation. He said he was trying to sell a chance to repair the wounds of colonialism. But really what he was doing was exploiting Ghana's ancestral wealth and exploiting people in Ghana, which has a very vulnerable history. So Yipaka Yibo, Yipoka, excuse me, uh, Yipoka Yibo, the journalist, uh, the Ghanaian journalist who's written this book, it, incredible it's energetic it's dynamic it is just such a great read but it's also a really interesting read at this time andrew when all of us know that african land resources and governments um you know, there are other countries that might want to have control of them. It may no longer be the British government, but there are other governments. Touches, of course, on the different uh, conceptions of geography. And, and, and your other two books, uh, the best nonfiction of the summer, also deal with one kind of geography or another, particularly environmental geography. Uh, the Underworld, Journeys to the Depths of the Ocean, actually reminds me this one of um, uh, a new book by Laura Trethaway, who yes. uh, has a new book, The Deepest Mind, The Deepest Map, about uh, uh, her investigations of, uh, of the oceans. Actually, these books would be a great read together. There's also an historic book. Uh, and of course, I've forgotten its title. It's about William Beebe, whom I believe both Trethaway and Casey talk about, the man who um, 
went below in the first bathysphere, the first submersible that could go to the depths. And so the depths of the ocean, in case someone doesn't know, mean anything below 650 feet. So for example, sharks and dolphins and creatures like that, they're all really on the surface of the oceans. Um, 650 feet and below is deep, deep water. And so just to talk about Susan Casey's book for a moment, I've been a big fan of her writing about the seas and the oceans since she wrote a book called The Devil's Teeth about the Farallon Islands off the coast of San Francisco. And um, she has a real general um, reader and writer's gift for making big scientific ideas accessible. And not the least because she actually makes these trips. So in this, remember Ocean Gate? Well, that's not what Susan Casey is taking part in, okay? Um, she did, however, take a voyage to the depths of the ocean with a very rich man named Victor Vescovo, who has his own weird little submersible that he calls the limiting factor. Yeah, very, from very uh, topical, sadly. Yeah, uh, sadly, very topical. And so um, she says, I loved this. She says, unlike space, Susan Casey writes, when you go down to these depths, you're surrounded by life. And I thought that was such a powerful statement. You know, uh, the ocean is much more accessible than outer space, but we have not put the money, you know, into exploring it the way we have put money into exploring outer yeah, space. Yeah, in an odd way, thinking about your Anansi's goal, the ocean is the next chapter in 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 discovering, so to speak, uh, Africa, uh, sort of, and, and we can learn about the failures and mistakes and tragedies of colonialism, I think, in terms of the exploitation and discovery of, of, of this underworld. Absolutely, absolutely. And so... Uh, Although we probably Casey, won't, of course, because we never do. We never, we, we, we learn nothing. Uh, but uh, my, my final book, I know, I think you've got a well, slide. Well, the final book, I got a good segue to this. The quickening, you wouldn't, it wouldn't be possible to do a best nonfiction book of the summer of 2023, of course. Without the environment, July being um, the hottest month on record and this new book, uh, The Quickening, Creation and Community at the Ends of the Earth by Elizabeth Rush. How, how dark is this book? It is remarkably not at all dark. I don't know how she's done it, but this is, I, I say, going from uh, Susan Casey in the depths, we go to Elizabeth Rush in the breadths. So basically, she goes to the Antarctic and she talks a lot about climate change and environmental things that makes this book completely different from other books about climate change right now is that Elizabeth Rush is considering motherhood. And Elizabeth Rush is saying, here I am seeing all of these things at the Antarctic that are really sad. For instance, some of the places that she gets to walk where no human has ever walked before are only available because of environmental destruction. And so she is meditating on whether or not to bring a human being into a world that seems poised on the brink of destruction. But when she starts thinking about it, she brings in 
a certain kind of hope and joy. For example, one of the things she points out is that many of us have been so concerned with our carbon footprint. That's a phrase we all know so well now. Guess what? That was a marketing phrase that British Petroleum actually put together some years back. It really doesn't mean anything. It just means, I mean, you can lie with statistics. It doesn't, it doesn't mean a thing. And so she says, look, if we could get global regulations, global change done, we can stop this. And I can bring a child into this world and have hope because we'll actually make a change. And there are just a couple of things I want to um, point out in her book. Uh, my uh, colleague, Lorraine Berry, who also writes for the LA Times, uh, put together an incredible review of this book, The Quickening. And she says that the ice would sharpen her understanding. This is Rush writing about herself. The ice would sharpen her understanding of whether they stand at the end of the world or the start of a new one. And Lorraine Berry then closes with, these are not the outer limits. This is where we all are today. <laughs>